So I'm going to start with a question. What is the worth of a person? Have you ever really thought about what the worth of a person is? Um, I'm sure you'll all agree that life is priceless. So if I ask you what's the value of life, um, but what is a, does a person have a worth? Um, and strangely, I know this sounds morbid, but scientists actually look at this and they take a technical view when they're answering this question. And they've come up with two numbers. A person is either worth $250, if a person is kind of brought down to the, the composition of the atomic elements and how much they weigh and what's the market value of those elements, or a person is worth $2 million, if you take into account that people have corneas and organs like hearts and lungs and livers and kidneys, and all these things that people are willing to pay money for. Um, and so if, if people were a commodity, then the person sitting next to you is $2 million. But people aren't a commodity, and scientists aren't the only ones that are going around uh, asking or trying to determine the worth of people. We all do this. And if you think about it, we are constantly assessing the worth and value of the people around us. And we do it based on whether or not they share our interests, how easy it is to be able to talk to them. Uh, we consider factors like the sorts of jobs they have, the clothes they wear, the neighborhood they live in, the culture that they got brought up in, their history, what their backstory is. And as someone who was born and raised on the East Coast, there's this really peculiar recurring question that seems unique to Adelaide. Uh, what school did I go to? As if that was somehow important to peg who am I and, and kind of line me up in where my value might be. The sad truth is that we're all prejudiced and because we all prejudge the value of people, we're all guilty of discrimination in some form or another. In a room full of people, we'll create this subconscious mental image and line people up according to our perceived value of them. And when we're on the receiving end of this, when we're compared to someone else, how does that make us feel? I can speak for myself and I can say it hurts. It really hurts to be devalued, to be uh, led up by the opinions of someone else, to be compared to someone else, um, it, and it hurts that, uh, to, to look at the way someone might value me, uh, and in contrast, especially if I value that person, that their opinion can actually um, hurt a lot more. The book of James discusses the various tests that are in the Christians, that the Christians will face in their life. And the first chapter started talking about uh, tests and trials that will come, the test of temptation, James challenges us in the first chapter on what our responses are. Are we good listeners? Are we emotional responders? Do we let our emotionals rule? Do we listen to the word of God? And more importantly, do we put that into action? In effect, are we doers of what we believe? And James is challenging throughout this entire book, what does your faith look like? What's your faith in action? And we have a phrase in the Australian vernacular, and having been born in Brisbane, I'm gonna use my Queenslander accent, Fair go, mate. The great Australian fair go. To be given a fair go in Australia means everyone is being treated fairly and equally. To be given a chance, to be, to be given a level playing field. And it's so much part of Australian culture, this Australian fair go. Politicians use it as a catchphrase, as a 
grab when election time is on to try and get an extra couple of votes. And now as we look at the second chapter in James, we look at the application of the Christian fair go. How does the Christian fair go look compared to the Australian fair go? And in this chapter, James is dealing with the test of partiality, which is the sin of showing favour to people because of characteristics of qualities based on how we value those over um, better measures, I suppose. The word partiality is defined as prejudice or bias in favour of something. And so this morning, we're going to have a look to see what James has to say about partiality. He calls it a sin and he calls it evil. And James makes an appeal to us in this passage on three points. And he reasons we should adopt the Christian fair go because it aligns with the character of God, it keeps with the royal law of God, and it reflects the grace of God. And this morning, those are the three points that we're going to look at. So we'll start there in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Right off the bat, James begins the discussion with prohibition. Believers must not show favoritism. The recipients of this letter, which was written to scattered Jewish Christians around 45, 50 AD, they were guilty of practicing discrimination. As we can see in verse 6, it said, but you have dishonored the poor, you being the recipients of the letter. The recipients were faithful believers. They were referred to as brothers and sisters here in this verse, and they're even stated to be believers in the glorious Jesus, yet were practicing favoritism that was inconsistent with faith. Favoritism is a contradiction to the truth of the gospel. And verse 1 talks about these believers having belief in the glorious Lord Jesus. And the use of the word glory there describes Jesus in the most strong and profound way that language can put it. And it's terrific insight into what the early Christians at that time thought of Jesus. So some 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death, when this letter was written, they believed he was God, the Lord of glory, as other translations put it. Glory has a special mean, meaning in terms of, uh, in relation to God. That's how powerful the word glory is. But in this sentence, in the same breath that they're describing Jesus as glorious, it's saying believers must not show favoritism. Stressing that there's an inconsistency of allowing favoritism to be associated with faith in someone so glorious as Jesus. Believers must not show favoritism. And what is favoritism? James offers up an example Verse 2 and 3. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy, filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. In this example that, that James is using, the usher of this church service guides a rich man to a special seat showing a great deal of respect and admiration to this person. But then he tells the poor man, which in today's language would be the equivalent of a homeless man, to stand in the back or to sit on the floor. 
The wealthy man got a great seat, but the poor man got the cold, hard floor. Was there anything wrong with showing respect and admiration and ushering this rich man to a great seat? No, this verse isn't anti-hospitality. James says that the usher was showing prejudicial favoritism because he determined in his own mind that the rich man was somehow worth more than the poor man and therefore deserved better treatment. The problem is not the hospitality given to the rich man, but the lack of the same hospitality to the poor man. Favoritism is discriminating to show special attention to one, but not all. Many of us give people that we value the best seats in our life, while shunning those that we don't particularly favour. This text is important for us to study, because just like the Christian in James's day, we need to understand that in God's eyes, all are equal. As Christians, we need to get this right, and we need to understand that it is a sin to discriminate against people for any reason. James calls this out in this passage. This is a serious matter. If you show favoritism, James asks in question four, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Discrimination, favoritism, it's not just a bad idea. It's not just an unfair go. James calls it evil. It's evil because we're sitting in judgment on others. It's evil to favor the rich over the poor or to welcome one and not another. Is there ever a place for this? Is it ever okay to judge others? Well, we need to get the terminology right on that. If we're talking about judgment being declaring people eternally guilty before the throne of God, then no, we have no place in that. That is for God and God alone to do. But if by judgment we ask, is that exercising discernment? Or to evaluate the actions of another against biblical principles? Then the answer is yes, we can do that. For instance, we're right to judge a person that might put themselves forward as an elder in the church, but completely denies the teaching of the Bible. We wouldn't cut this person off from fellowship necessarily, but at the same time, we would recognize that they had no place in Christian leadership. We would be right to judge him unfit. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 7, 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but judge correctly. Jesus does not say that all judgment is wrong, but we must judge rightly and objectively based on biblical principles. In 1 Peter, in chapter 1, 15 to 17, it says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Since favoritism and partiality are evil, a sin, then the first reason we should adopt the Christian fair go is because it aligns with the character of God. God, who is holy, has called us to be holy. And God is described as someone who judges impartially. Peter also describes God in Acts 10 as um, 34 to 35. God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation. Jesus showed this attitude, giving equal time to the rich and the poor, to the secure 
and to the vulnerable, and was described even by his enemies in Matthew 22, verse 16. We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Jesus' enemies acknowledged that Jesus didn't pay attention to who they are, as in their status. But, um, but when, show, when we show favoritism, when we pay attention to who people are in terms of their status, then James says in verse 4, we have become judges with evil thoughts. He's saying the standards that we use to judge are no longer God's standards because the character of God is not evil, therefore the standards of God are not evil. How does verse 5 start? With the word listen. James goes on in verse 5 and he's asking us to give him um, our attention and to listen to an argument as to why our standards are flawed when we use our standards to, uh, to, for favoritism. Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? It's God's riches that make someone truly rich and the poor are chosen to inherit God's riches. We're not chosen by any merit or work or popularity or wealth And there's no reason to treat others or to favour others because of what they can do for us or for who they are. God doesn't value the rich more than he does the poor, nor nor has he chosen the poor simply because they are the poor. But he does know that the poor can teach us a valuable truth. If a person doesn't have a lot of material possessions, it's easier for them to see their need for God and to develop a rich faith. And the reverse is also true. When all of our physical needs are met, we can have difficulty in understanding our need for God and our faith can shrink. Our standards look at the outward appearances, but God's standards look at the heart of those who love him. And James continues the argument in verses 6 and 7, but you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong? Rather than helping the cause of the gospel, many in high places by the world's standards oppress, dilute the gospel and blaspheme Christ. Our standards are flawed because the very people that we think might benefit us often do the opposite. And the ways that we judge each other over superficial and meaningful reasons, we have to remember that God is able to see past all of that. God accepts and calls us just as we are. And likewise, we need to do that to others. And it's worthwhile clarifying that James isn't talking about all rich people here, that we shouldn't read this text as if James hates rich people. He might not speak highly of them in this passage, but later in the book, Um, In reference to Abraham and Job, who are both wealthy individuals, um, he speaks highly of them. He doesn't hate rich people, and he's not saying that all rich people are oppressors. James is simply making the point that God doesn't choose based on money or influence. 
He's chosen physically poor people to be rich in faith and to advance his gospel. But God doesn't treat differently based on money than nor should we. And this doesn't mean that we necessarily treat that all people in the same way all the time, and nor does it mean that we, that we pretend that there aren't any differences between us, as particularly here in the church, even worldly differences. But it does mean that we treat people in a way that's not based merely on worldly standards, but we treat them according to God's standards. The Christian fair go aligns with the character of God. And the second reason, it keeps the royal law of God. In verse 8, James tells us what the royal law is. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. The royal law is love your neighbour as yourself. And it's called the royal law because it's through this that all other laws governing human relationships, they all derive from that. If you think about it, that the royal law sums up all laws. If you love your neighbour as yourself, all the laws that are about human relationships, they, um, you know, they, they can be distilled down to that. And using the example early in the, in the chapter, um, showing hospitality to the rich man, well, the usher was loving his neighbour as himself. He treated the rich man in the same way that he would like to have been treated himself. But his issue was with how he treated the poor man. James says you are doing right when you love your neighbour, and the right course of action is to show favour to everyone, overlooking superficial distinctions. The right thing is showing kindness to a person, in spite of any qualities that we might place value on. A man who is very loving to his immediate family and circle of friends, who bends over backwards to help them. His friends are a strong advocate for him. This man is loving his neighbours, but if he's unable to show the same love to someone in need, then James says, despite all the good that he has done, he has broken God's royal law. And there in verse 9, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. To show favoritism is not just failing to do a social nicety. James calls it a sin. They are a lawbreaker of the royal law. Verse 10 starts with the word for, and he's now going to continue on that theme and explain why favoritism makes them a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of breaking it all, breaking all of it. This is a hypothetical case. It's talking about someone who's able to keep the whole law. And throughout all of history, we know it's hypothetical because the only one who's been able to do that has been Jesus. Um, but in this hypothetical one, this person is able to keep the whole law. Um, in James, actually in James chapter 3, verse 2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. So James recognises that, um, that we will stumble on many points. But in this hypothetical case, this person keeps the whole law and only stumbles on one point. James reasons that to break one part of the law makes a, guilt, makes a person guilty of breaking the entire law. And so just imagine you're on a swing 
and your seat is being supported by chains that are hanging to the structure. If one link in that chain fails, then what will happen? The whole swing fails and you fall to the ground. And it doesn't matter which link particularly failed, it only needs one. James continues the explanation in verse 11, for he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Although, although God's law has many facets, it's essentially one. It's the expression of the character and the will of God himself. To violate the law at any point is to violate the will of God and to contradict the character of God. The same God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And he also gave the royal law of loving one's neighbour. The person who breaks one of these has become a lawbreaker. And as an example, there are many laws active in South Australia. If someone's caught driving without a licence, do we say they have broken Section 74 of the Motor Vehicles Act 1959? Or do we say they have broken a law? No. What do we do in the English language? We say they have broken the law which is the law that's expressed through many acts and regulations. It's the will of the government that everyone is entitled to be safe, to be treated fairly and to value life. To be caught driving without a license means the person has disregarded that will. They've kind of gone out on their own way. They've dis disregarded community, disregarded the intent behind that law. And we say they've broken the law. And this is the point that James is making. Although this commandment might be broken, the entire law of God is flouted. When that one link in the chain fails, the entire chain fails. And this is exactly why we need the redeeming work of Christ. And it's, it's exactly why the cross is so central to Christianity. Again, here we are sitting on that swing, and the law are the chains supporting our swing seat to the structure. If we're relying on the law to save us, essentially being good people, well, every day we are breaking God's law. Even the most insignificant wrong act is breaking God's law. Those links in the chain are failing all around us. But for Christians, our, our seat is not supported by the strength of those chains, but rather the seat is resting on the cross, the work that Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. But as we rest on the cross, the expression of our faith in Jesus will be displayed in our actions. Showing favoritism breaks what Jesus asks us to do, the royal law, to love your neighbour as yourself. And when viewed like this, it makes that act of favoritism far more significant than just not doing a social nicety. The Christian fair go aligns with the character of God and it keeps the royal law of God. And thirdly, the Christian fair go reflects the grace of God. When you and I show favoritism, we're saying that we are the judge of someone's value, that our opinion is the standard for determining that person's worth. 
But God's word teaches that the standard is not our opinion, but rather it's the cross. That in God's eyes, every single human life is equal in value to the life of his son. Our worth as individuals isn't determined by our wealth or our looks or our social status, but by God's grace. In verse 12, speak and act as those who are being judged, are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In the Greek, the speak and act there, that sentence, is more strongly conveyed. It's, it's more literally so speak and so act. And the double so emphasizes the emphasis across both of those things. We as believers are going to be judged by a law that gives freedom. That law that gives freedom is Christ's redeeming work. We're not going to be judged by a legalistic system. Therefore, speak and act as such when we're interacting with others. We've been redeemed and we rest in the grace of God and the love of God. So we need to extend that same love to others by not showing favoritism. In other words, there's a phrase, treat others as Christ treated us. We must act towards others as people who are equally dependent on the same grace that we are from God. That verse 13 there echoes what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1 to 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And it's also what Jesus said in a parable um, in Matthew 18, 33. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? When we don't show favoritism, we are showing mercy. God was merciful to us in loving us despite of our spiritual poverty and rebellion against him. Even while we were still running from him, he sent his son to enter into our mess and ultimately die in our place. There was no greater mercy than that. We read um, earlier, Penny read about that story in Jonah. And Jonah displayed partiality. Jonah was asked by God to go preach repentance in a great but evil city called Nineveh. Jonah refused, ran away, ultimately became obedient and went and preached. To his amazement and disappointment, the people of Nineveh repented and they asked for God's salvation. Jonah displayed partiality, but God knew that the city needed a preacher to show them the error of their wickedness. Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they had done and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah himself even deep down knew that God was merciful and would forgive them if they asked. But he felt they weren't deserving of that. He displayed partiality. Chapter 4, verse 2 of Jonah, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Judging according to mercy 
reflects a heart that's changed by the gospel. Judging according to superficial standards reflects a heart that knows little mercy. If we fail to show mercy to others and instead show partiality, we prove that we really don't understand what mercy is. And that same measure will be applied to us. The Christian fair goal aligns with the character of God, keeps the raw law of God, and reflects the grace of God. So how as believers do we apply the Christian fair go? Well, by challenging our thoughts and actions and accepting all equally. By remembering to see people not through our lens and our value system, but to see them as God does. And if it helps, just imagine each person you meet is $2 million. We can accept others when we make room at our table, make room in our circle of friends for someone that we may not know. Jesus identified with people who are poor, hungry strangers, sick in prison. We must and can do these things. Loving one another means getting involved in the lives of others, as messy as that can be. And it could also involve inviting someone to join you at church or a Bible study in your home or a function that your church puts on. Accepting one another as Jesus did dishonors God. Oh, sorry, honors God and brings rejoicing in heaven. Who can you show God's love to today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder uh, in this passage in James. Firstly, we just thank you for what you have done for us on the cross. We're, we were undeserving of your grace. We were undeserving of salvation, but yet you decided to provide a way that we could restore relationship with you and that we could come back to you. And we thank you for that. And we just pray that we won't lose sight of that as we interact with people in our day-to-day -day lives, through our workplaces, through our friendships, through our communities and our neighbourhoods, and also in our church. And we just pray that, uh, that your spirit in us will continue to convict us um, of what your word says. In your name, amen.